The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Turning your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. We continue uh, working through the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John. Or the farewell discourse, as some would call it. These are the final words Jesus speaks to his disciples before his arrest. It's the night. Uh, it's the night before um, the crucifixion. <clears throat> Just a few hours, Jesus will be hanging on the cross in your behalf and mine. <clears throat> but I think a little background might. Uh, be worth it for all of us. <clears throat> Last week, we actually looked at the first seven verses of this chapter 14, but <clears throat> the thought of it all uh, begins uh, even earlier than that, back in chapter 13, in uh, verse 33, where Jesus said, Little children, uh, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And apparently Peter put some thought into what Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter pretty much ignores the new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. And he goes straight to where I'm going, you cannot come. And then in verse 36 Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And then in typical Peter fashion, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. <clears throat> and then Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter doesn't really understand, and this is indicative of this entire situation with the disciples, confusion and, and, and fear uh, reign in their lives. Their, the, things are sort of opening up for them. They're, they're, they're seeing things more as they really are instead of what they dream them to be. Uh, and so, seeing that in their hearts and knowing that is going on in their hearts, then Jesus says in John in 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. It's a difficult time. This is not how it was supposed to end. They've been itinerants for three, uh, three years or more all with the expectation that this thing will finally conclude uh, with glory for the Lord and glory for us too, by the way. And it didn't help. We we read it back in uh, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So he's telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. At the same time, he's troubled. The Bible tells us. And even right after that, he's more troubled. As John tells us, Satan entered into Judas, and then Jesus dismisses Satan and Judas from their midst to go do what they had planned to do. My little one sentence outline last week do not be troubled because your future. Is secure, And so he says, in my father's house, verse 2, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas has a question. After Peter has a question, then Thomas has a question uh, when he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And 
And then Jesus declares with the sixth of the seven I am statements that we have in the Gospel of John when he says, <clears throat> he says, do not be troubled because uh, your future is secure and I will see to it because I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I gave you um, Sproul's um, clarification of all of this. I think is important. I am the way. Because I am the truth and because I am the life, I'm the way to the Father because I'm the true manifestation or revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I alone have the power of eternal life. And Merrill Tenney more simply says, without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's no living. And in today's uh, passage, we see uh, Philip's lack of understanding. And for all of them, on behalf of the entire 11, Philip reacts to that verse 7. After Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know Uh, From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip reacts to that. Lord, show us the Father. It'll be enough. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great? The implication here is that for all the close acquaintance with Jesus over a three-year period, it seems that their acquaintance is superficial at best. It also seems suggested that although Christ has chosen his disciples, they have not come to know the Father through him. Partially because they, maybe they don't know, well, they don't know Christ as who he really is. And we might, we were trying to be discerning and not people who know the rest of the story. You know, we read the end of the book, right? We know how it ends, right? Well, these guys didn't. We need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Most preachers you read and see and commentators don't give them the benefit of the doubt. But their knowledge is pre-cross knowledge. That is, that we're acquainted. You and I are acquainted with Christ. Uh, And and, and we were at some point in our lives acquainted with Christ in a more shallow sense because we did not have the understanding, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that he loved me and gave himself up for me. But then he says, from now on, right here in John 14, he tells his disciples, from now on, you know him. That means the hour of their eyes being open and them understanding this is here. That time has arrived. Especially when we get later in this chapter, we'll see in the next few weeks, when he sends the promised comforter, the Holy Spirit. Then, finally, they'll see what Paul tells us is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Charles Simeon said, and they could not conceive a right of his divine character. Sometimes, indeed, they spake well respecting it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But at other times, they showed that their judgment respecting it was very wavering and ill-informed. You know, I've looked at this passage. We all have for all... Those of us who grew up in the church, we've looked at this passage our whole lives. But I realized some things this week that were important to me. And that is, they could, up to a point, they could trust Jesus. At the least, they saw he's a man of God. They knew he was the Messiah, different kind of Messiah in their minds. They could trust what he said. 
they, these, these disciples at this point were Old Testament believers. But they were living by sight. So as believers living by sight, they only trusted what they saw. And what they saw was Jesus standing there in front of them. The apostles, we need to continually remember, were unique in some ways. Number one, they were the only apostles. There weren't any apostles before Jesus. There weren't any apostles after these apostles. They were the only apostles. They were the only ones that had specific apostolic gifts. Those are no longer They are the only ones who were Old Testament believers who became New Testament believers. How about that? You ever thought of that? I hadn't. But particularly, they were Old Testament believers who were living by sight. We can sit here and we can make fun of them, as many preachers do. At least we can belittle them for not getting it. Simply because it's so clear to us, we have the whole story. Most Old Testament believers lived by faith. Now, there's the occasional theophany. We've got Jacob saw God, Moses saw God in a sense, and Joshua um, so God, Gideon, Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and it sounds like a long list, but there are a lot of people in the Old Testament. And most of them lived by faith. They couldn't see God in the Old Testament. They did not live by sight. And so, these 11 disciples, 12 when Judas was around, Lived by sight up to this point. Faith seems to come harder for them. In fact, at this point, they're at a disadvantage because they were with Jesus. Now, that's not heresy. But they were at a disadvantage because they were with Jesus. In fact, he tells them in a few verses, he says... When I'm gone, you're going to do greater things. Things were about to change. Soon at the coming of the Holy Spirit, they become New Testament believers. They can live by faith. And those sorts of things are just mind-boggling to me. And I'm sure it was mind-boggling to them. They didn't even know what the next day held. Here's another quick point I want to make that hadn't occurred to me till this week. I'm slow, just so you'll know, give you a heads up. Those of you, you that know me real well know I'm slow, but some of you don't, so now you all know. They knew what they could see. Philip said, show us the Father, because it wasn't Jesus they didn't know. It was the Father. They could trust Jesus on a certain level. They lived with Him. He was true to His Word. They could see Him. They weren't sure if they could trust this God He was talking about. They knew what God He was talking about. But that was the problem. All along, I thought as we go through this chapter, that their problem was that they just were having trouble... Um, trusting Jesus. But what they're having trouble trusting now is what Jesus says about God. So ultimately, their problem is trusting God. They didn't know if they could trust God with all that's going on in their lives. They could trust as long as they could see They weren't sure who this God was. And could he really be trusted? And for the record, 
We'd like to see him. And so Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. And Jesus said, and it seems like this is frustrating. I don't know his tone. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now, by the way, Philip's speaking for all of them. He says, show us the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, that's emphatic, truly, Truly, listen up, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, people... I'm not not starting with the last verse, but when I read that, I thought, you know people who think that's just a blank check, don't you? (laughs) This morning we're going to look in the verses 8 through 14. By Jesus the Father is seen, by Jesus the Father works, and by Jesus the Father is petitioned. First, by Jesus, the Father is seen. We see Philip's request and Jesus' revelation. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's the revelation. How can you say, show us the Father? So Philip inserts himself in this conversation Jesus presently having with Thomas. Because of that explanation, he even seems to accept the truth that he hasn't seen the Father as Jesus described. Certainly, Philip hadn't seen the Father as those Old Testament characters I list I read to you just a moment ago saw him. In fact, Philip has seen him in a more particular way. Philip has seen him in a greater way. Philip just doesn't know it. Certainly, Philip might be thinking about a Mount of Transfiguration. He wasn't there. Peter, James, and John comes back and says, A bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice came out of the cloud. He didn't even have that sense. He wasn't there. But for all of Philip's confessed blindness at this point, we do have to admit he's trying to get it. At one level, they, Philip and the disciples truly do know Jesus. And therefore, in the Son, they have seen the Father, but they just don't recognize this yet. Well, there's just a few hours left in his life. Time is urgent. This is still beyond them, but they're, they're going to get it. And since there's still these questions, Philip asks for direct access. Show us. The Father. We need an immediate display of God Himself. You know, John, way back in the first chapter, um, has already made it clear that however soft God's revelation of Himself has been to His people, however muted God's self-disclosure was in former times, it's not muted or soft anymore. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God is at the father's side. He talking about Jesus. He has made him known. For a man or woman to cry out to God for light in the midst of all their darkness, and that's what Philip's in, and Philip's in some darkness here, that's a cry that God welcomes. For you to cry out to Him in your darkness, I need to see you. We need to always consider, though, that If, in fact, the light has been revealed before our very eyes and we remain blind to it, we need God to open our eyes to see it. That's what Philip needs. Philip just didn't know that that was his problem. And the emphasis here sometimes, and we see this in the world today, is on the dramatic experience. Something spectacular, something physical, something visible, some sign that God is, some sign that God actually exists. How many of you, you've asked for some, just show me, God, just show yourself to me. I've heard people leave church sometimes, say, God showed up today. Oh, really? Once they get some dazzling sight of God, then they're going to have peace with God. They get some dazzling sight of God, and they're going to have their problems solved. And then they'll believe. They'll serve God. Their lives will change, and they'll start acting right and behaving. Listen, we have seen God. Jesus is the revelation of God that people still reject. And Philip, at this point, still not satisfied with what he saw in Jesus walking the way he was walking, even by sight, was not enough. He wanted more sight. Jesus was appearing and communicating and, and living as a mere human being, and Philip wanted more than what Jesus was. What an indictment against us. We often say Jesus is not enough just by the way we live. Some people say it out loud. I need more. Jesus is just a man. He's not the Son of God. Oh, perhaps he was Son of God in a sense by being the best man who ever lived, but no more than that. People walk through life blinded by the truth of that. Blinded. That the great love of God has been shown in the face of Jesus Christ himself. Um, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4. That attitude. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And Simeon, and Charles Simeon helps us make this transition. And this brought from our blessed Lord an answer which is of the greatest importance to the church in all ages, inasmuch as it establishes the doctrine of the divinity of Christ beyond all contradiction. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Lord, show us the Father. I'll be satisfied with that. Uh, Philip, The Father and I are united. We are one. He's already said this a number of times. I and the Father are one absolute unity. And so he says, we are one, Philip, the Father and I. And you've known me so long. It's three years, day in and day out, for a three-year period. The entirety of Jesus' ministry on earth, all that time, all that daily interaction, but there's no guarantee that they're still going to have the deepest insight into who Jesus is. You've known people like that. You might be one of them. 
You've been in Sunday school. You've been in Bible study for 30, 40, 50 or more years. You still don't know the truth of God's word. I've encountered those people. And that's astounding to me. Have I been with you so long? It's important to keep in mind, too, Jesus made an earlier declaration that relates to this. In Matthew 11, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So this revelation... I think Charles Simeon was correct uh, when he said... The greatest, this answer is the greatest importance to the church in all ages. The revelation is astounding. Jesus is the full, the full embodiment of God. He that has seen me has seen the Father. When you see Jesus, you see a person who is the very nature of God. When you see Jesus, you see a person who is the very character of God. When you see Jesus, you see the person who is the very substance of God, the very perfection of God. When you see Jesus, you see one who is God in all of his perfect being. No exception. He's not the same person as God the Father. But he's of the same perfect nature. Jesus Christ is God the Son. So the person who has seen Jesus Christ has seen the Father in the fullness of the Father's nature. If you have, and, and it's, a, it's a massive doctrine for us to fully grasp, put our, uh, wrap our minds around, but if you have trouble with the doctrine of the Trinity, just read John chapter 14 over, 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 and over, and over, and you'll get it. The Holy Spirit's coming. John 12:45 and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He's already said it. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see two things here. Philip is blind to the light, and Jesus is light to the blind. I mean, Philip was the one who found Jesus there back in chapter 1 and convinced that he's talking to Nathaniel. We went over that passage for a different reason last week. But when when he says that we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Just think about how much of the word and the works of the ministry of Jesus Philip has witnessed. He's got this sense of loyalty to Jesus as these eleven do. It's different from Judas. Even as a conservative Hebrew, he's blinded the essential character of Jesus. He's like some of my seminary professors, especially in the early, back in the 70s when I was in seminary and most of them didn't believe in the truth of, of God's Word. You, you've got seminary professors that full of all this head knowledge, but unconverted. Specialized in the Gospels. Certainly, Philip specializes in the Gospels. He just doesn't see it. He doesn't have... Philip is blind to the light. But Jesus is light to the blind. The most profound, clear responses to who he is. They would shock the Hebrew mind. He who's seen me has seen the Father. He who's seen me has seen Jehovah God. 
Further, Jesus' prompting of Philip for a reply only just reinforces that he unapologetically really did mean exactly what he said. Why would you say, show us the Father? No mere man could make that cl- the claims that he made. No mere man could make the claims that he made with supporting evidence. And Jesus has done this, and he'll do it in the resurrection. He's God incarnate. And isn't it wonderful, just a little side note, we see the word or the name Father over and over and over and over. God as Father. And just as an earthly father, God is not distant. He's here in Jesus Christ. And just as an earthly father, he's not far off. He's here in Jesus Christ. Now, those of you that didn't have relationships uh, with your father and don't have good relationships with your father, don't even know who your father is, you might not understand this clearly, but you have a heavenly father far greater than your earthly father. Your heavenly father is loving and just as Jesus and giving and helpful and full of goodness and truth and responsible and accountable and directing and correcting and forgiving and caring. That's what your heavenly father does for you through Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? And John tells us in 1 John, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. What a treasure that we can call him Father. Next, we see by Jesus, the Father works. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's a a, 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 a rhetorical question, I think. Yes, you ought to believe, I think Jesus is saying. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is mutual indwelling. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's important for you to grasp. I don't know where I found this. I wrote it down one day. I don't know which of the stacks of commentary and books that I read and study and said this, but I love this sentence, and it's not from me originally. There is nothing un-Jesus-like in the heart of the Father. At a fallible human level, we often refer to the, the, the Son as being the very image of the Father, not simply in terms of physical features, but in terms of character and temperament. Someone will look at my son and say, you're just like your dad. Now, when my wife says to my son, you're just like your dad, that's negative. But when most other people say that, right? She says no. And the son might not even be aware of that similarity, and that's not true with Jesus. But here the likeness between God the Father and God the Son takes just a more profound identity. Especially in terms of what Jesus knows about himself, his own self-consciousness. He's well aware of his divinity. He's well aware of the intimacy of the relationship that he has with the Father. 
he's well aware of his union uh, with the Father, Yahweh, the great Jehovah. In submission as a son, but in no way inferior. You get that? In submission as a son, but in no way inferior, equal. No everyday ambassador or messenger would refer to the one who sent him as his father. Nobody would claim that whoever has seen him has seen his father. Nobody would affirm that I am in the father and my father is in me. Except Jesus. And within the context of the Gospel of John, overall, throughout the Gospel of John, the the supreme event that we're leading up to and we're very close to, where when God displays himself in Jesus with greatest glory, the moment when the Father is most powerfully glorified in the Son is in the glorification of the Son on the cross. Immediately ahead of them. And the consequence of that event, you know, the consequence of that event of the glorification of the Son is? It's the consequence is the sending of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit finally will enable Jesus' disciples to grasp, hold the truth which they are just dimly aware of right now. So they, I asked the question, have they been in some sort of a fog? Well, in some sense, they have been in some sort of a fog. The grounds of Jesus' expectations, though, must surely be in his words and his works. That's what we read in these two verses, 10 and 11. Back in chapter 10, verse 38, he's talking about them. He said, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, if you see this correctly, if you see these things correctly, my words and particularly my works, they lead to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God and reveals the likeness of the Father through the works that He does. So, J.C. Ryle rightly says, How little we realize the fullness of the expression, the Father dwelleth in me. And so the words of Jesus are the words of the Father, the words of God. They're intimately and Actively manifest, those words are manifest and revealed and explained in many ways in his works. Remember when we were preaching through Acts and we were talking about the apostolic works, the, the, the miracles that were taking place. All those are were confirmation that the words were true. And that's what we have in this case as well. The proof of the union of Jesus And his father is threefold. They believe Jesus because of his character. I am in the father and the father is in me. They believe Jesus because his words are the father's words. The words that I say are not my own, he said at some other point. And they should believe Jesus because the miracles Reveal God's working through him. The Father living in me is doing his work. Believe on, if you don't believe anything else, believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. We saw back in John 5:36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And one of the key elements of John's gospel that we don't see so clearly in the synoptic gospels is that the the stress on signs. You notice they're called works. They're not called wonders. They're not called miracles. They're called works in John. The stress is that these signs, these works are just gracious 
pointers to faith. Well, the point that Jesus is making, the proof that he's the embodiment of God, he was the one who came to earth to reveal God is clear to us. God's presence is not only with him, God's presence is in him. He himself is God. He himself, his person, his being, his character, his nature, his love, his just dealings. All that he revealed is who God is. And notice, too, in verse 11, he says, believe me. He doesn't say, believe in me. He says, believe me that I am in the Father. Believe that what I have just said is true. Faith includes a recognition that what Jesus says is true. And if they still find it difficult to penetrate the meanings of his words, then he says, then just believe on the evidence of the works. Think about that, the turning the water into wine, the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. Raising Lazarus from the grave. Certainly that's going to reveal what what, what he's saying signifies. That the saving kingdom of God is at work in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this in ways tied to the very person of Jesus. So, you know, if you can't take the high road and trust me for my words and believe that you see God when you see me, well, then just take the low road and believe that the miracles themselves reveal that I am in the Father. Isn't it wonderful? Uh, We should be comforted. Jesus is seeing a bit of a shallow faith in his disciples. He's not giving up on them. Take comfort in that. While all of this is, a, he's saying, are the greatest truths to consider, and his disciples fail in considering some of these things, but he still doesn't give up on them. In fact, he doesn't give up on them to the point that he tells them, you're going to do even greater things. So remember those that you encounter with a weaker faith than yourself, to be accepted and nurtured according to where they are. Paul reminds us of that in Romans 14.1. As for... The one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That might be a good Facebook reminder to some of you. In John, we see these signs, these works. They're called works. Why are they called works? Because for us, they're miracles. If it was just me on the face of it, I'd say, oh, that's a miracle. Turn water into wine. But for, what, for us, what is a miracle? It's nothing more than just a normal work for God. Then he closes this section, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And so Jesus did not expect his disciples to disband after he was gone. There was an expectation that they had more to do. Notice that? This promise seems impossible. Greater works... 
Yet at Peter's very first sermon in Acts, when 3,000 were added to the church, already he's done a greater work than Jesus ever did. Greater is not more sensational. I mean, maybe at a bigger wedding feast you could turn more water into wine. That's not what he's talking about. It's not greater in magnitude. Jesus will leave behind a victorious working church, not a cowering, fearful church. It's not necessarily an, uh, the easiest way to say it. It's not, when he says greater things you will do, it's not necessarily in greater in quality, maybe greater in quantity. There's some of that there. Jesus did his work in three years. We've had 20 centuries since then. We're involved in building the church of Jesus Christ, which in reality, in a sense, Jesus never did. In fact, Jesus left before the church was ever created. That's a great work. Jesus spoke mostly to Jews. We have billions around the world that we can declare the gospel to. The atonement, the atonement of Jesus Christ is the, is the trigger. It's the trigger for a whole new era of works. Greater works. That's a logical thing that we're going to do something greater than turning water into wine or raising somebody from the dead or healing the lame or multiplying loaves and fishes. And none of those things are ever performed in a parallel sense today. And certainly, if they're not performed in a parallel sense today, that it can't be enhanced upon. Nothing can be made greater about them. Jesus had something else in mind. Greater works. Turning water into wine signify that Jesus means that he was going to fill up human vessels with his sweetness. He's going to fill up human vessels with his fruit far beyond the ordinariness of common water. Turning water into wine means that Jesus is going to fill up lives with something more special. Multiplying loaves and fishes signify that Jesus has divinely provided bread. I am the bread of life, he says. And he's going to take starved and hungry souls. That's the greater work you can do. You, you quite possibly have already shared the gospel with more people than Jesus did. That you're going to speak to more starved and hungry souls. And what are you going to say to them? The raising of Lazarus signify that Jesus himself raises dead souls to newness of life. And so it's the feeding of hungry souls. It's the filling up of empty lives. It's the, it's the bringing of lives to dead lives, to newness of life. That's the greater work. And now once Jesus is going to the Father, the subsequent harvest of those who feast on the bread of life, raising up dead souls to eternal life, that, those things that we've accomplished in those 20, 20th centuries or Jesus has accomplished through us in those 20th centuries puts the pre-cross ministry of Jesus Christ in a shadow. That's why he says Greater things you will do. And he alludes to this. And uh, you remember this story in uh, Luke chapter 10. When he sent out the 72, he, he, 
that we see in verse 17, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he responded in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in the miracles. The greatest thing of all is that souls are saved. The greater work is the salvation of souls. That's the answer. And then by Jesus, the Father is petitioned quickly. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. To make the transition from the last couple of verses to this verse, to, to believe in God is one thing, to commune with God is another thing. And surely an intimate relationship must involve what? Prayer, supplication, communication, petition. But the problem is, the problem with this answer is that people who bring the request to a holy God expect God to listen to them in a loving way. And there's this barrier. How can the finite reach the infinite? How can the unholy reach the perfectly holy? How can the sinful reach one who's perfect purity? Jesus tells us there's good reason why God the Father will hear us with a welcome attitude. There's good reason that you can talk, speak to the Father, whatever you ask Him in my name. There's good reason for that. And the good reason is Jesus Himself. You can't go to the Father apart from Him. His divine person is atoning work, but especially His mediation. The reason why the greater things are done when Jesus goes to the Father, he clarifies even further. The disciples' fruitfulness is the product of their prayers. Prayers offered in the name of Jesus. You, and, and notice he says, if you ask me anything, you can pray to the Father or the Son. If you ask me anything, in my name, I will do it. The direction, you can direct it to the Father, you can direct it to the Son. And after the resurrection, the Son's role as mediator, even to the prayers of His Father, to His followers, is so great and precious. Prayers are in His name are prayers that are offered and in, in, in according to what His name stands for. It's not, it's not just a magical incantation. In Jesus' name, we claim this. You've heard people say that. Listen, this means far more than words in Jesus' name. That's not even a requirement in Scripture. Not, that's not a requirement in Scripture anymore. I'm saying those words any more than saying amen at the end of your prayers are required. We do it. I do it. It's a good reminder that those words are not required. Not any more than bowing your head and closing your eyes is required. It's a good idea. It's not a biblical requirement. In my name is not a Aladdin's lamp either. Woohoo, a blank check of prayer. Just name it and claim it. But it does signify both an endorsement, like a check, and a limitation. We are to come to God in Jesus' name. 
by Jesus' authority. Name in Scripture represents authority. In Jesus' name means praying with all that his name stands for. The Expository Dictionary of the Bible. Zondervan, 1985, page 454. Thought I'd give you the dictionary definition. In Jesus' name means to identify the content and motivations of prayer with all that Jesus is and to pray with full confidence in him as he has revealed himself. I thought it was good. That's why I thought I'd share it. Name in the biblical world means uh, authority, character, quality, the quality of the person being named. And this person being named, Jesus, is sitting at the right hand of the Father after the completion of God's plan of redemption. And the Father is accessible. He's ready, delighted to hear our prayers that Jesus prays in our behalf. And you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, John tells us in 1 John. And Jesus will speak on your behalf. Jesus will speak on the behalf of his true disciples. Our plea, our prayer becomes Jesus' petition to the Father. And why does he do that? Why does he do it? Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do it. That the Father may be glorified. And who answers the prayer? Who does it? If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus provides the answer. The same truth as in verse 13 is made of greater emphasis in the value of Jesus' mediatorial work. On a human level, we sometimes hear that to gain an audience with you want to gain an audience with an important person, you want to speak to an important person. It's not what you know; it's who you know. So to gain an audience in heaven, it's who you know. In his name. Pray in his name. And prayer involves dependence. Actually, prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. Prayer involves dependence. Prayer involves desire. If I really want something, I'll pray for it. Prayer involves conformity. We conform to His will. Prayer involves confidence. He has heard us. The importance of prayer is we have access to God. Not that He's going to answer my way. We do it all for His glory. You ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is claiming to be God. I will do it. Claiming to have wisdom and perfect wisdom and knowledge, power and ability, love and care, desire and willingness to answer your prayers. What a claim. What a claim we can count on. You know... The cross is overshadowing this entire upper room discourse. And if there was another way to save us than for Jesus to die on that cross, I'm sure God would have found another way. But he had to in order to send his Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll look at further in detail a little bit later. So that by sending of the Holy Spirit, greater works can be done than he did. 
so that we would have a mediator to pray for us, intercede on our behalf. That's why the cross. Why the cross? So that we might be saved. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Father God, Repent and believe today. Turn from that present life and run to that cross. He will hear your prayer. He will hear your prayer of submission. He will hear your prayer of belief. He will hear your prayer of faith. Do that today before it's too late. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn. During that hymn, our elders will be in the back, and we encourage you to, if you have questions, you want somebody to pray with you, we encourage you to go back there and speak to them, have them pray with you. They're willing to. Would you do that? Father, we pray that you would take the truth of your words and my own feeble explanation of your truths and open our hearts to your great truths. Change us. Move us from where we are right now to where you want us to be so that we might be your people. We might live lives for your glory. Hear our prayer, O Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.